Before there was the internet as we know it today, there were bulletin boards, BBSs. These were chat-based communities that sprang up around various interests. One of those interests that took off was computer security. And getting invited to join meant you had to know someone to get the phone number to dial in. Once you were dialed in, you could ask questions, you could learn new skills, you could even find out about even more BBSs. And on these BBSs, no one would know your true identity or age. You would only be judged by what you wrote. For bored, smart teenagers, this is a perfect way to learn how to hack or to share gaming cheats. Today we have it a bit easier. Surf over to YouTube or log into Twitter or Instagram or hop on Discord or Twitch and you'll find members of the InfoSec community ready to share information. Much like the BBSs of yesterday, these social media sites can be used to teach people how to hack. And that's where YouTube comes into play. You can watch over the shoulder of a professional hacker to see what she sees and then try to hack on your own. Some hackers live stream events and some hackers are starting to have a large number of followers, massive numbers. But as amazing as all this sounds, there are trade-offs. In a moment, you'll hear from someone who's been publishing high quality InfoSec content on YouTube for the last six years and now has over a half million subscribers. And having reached that peak, he's now wondering what he should do next. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing something a bit different, the rise of social media as a means to share hands-on knowledge in IT and InfoSec, and what that might mean for InfoSec security conferences, and even who we consider to be our InfoSec influencers. Not all of us like being on camera or before a microphone or even standing on a conference stage, but for some of us, this just comes naturally. Given the context of social media nowadays and the, the importance of influencers nowadays in, in media in general, I guess it's fair to say that um, what I'm doing now is somewhat uh, being an influencer. For more than six years, Live Overflow has been generating engaging hacking content on YouTube. His approachable style and his desire to teach others what he's learned about information security has resulted in a massive following of half a million subscribers. By anyone's measure, that would make him an InfoSec influencer, would it not? I mean, first of all, it's interesting to think about that I'm an influencer. It's a very new term and it's weird to, uh, to name myself an influencer. It's not something I have ever considered to become or wanted to become. So how does one get 600,000 YouTube subscribers? Did Live Overflow have that goal in mind when he started? What was his motivation? It all started with um, creating a YouTube channel after I uh, watched a live CTF recording from Geohot. Wait a second, Geohot? That's George Hotz, who played for the CTF team Plaid Parliament Opening, or PPP, in 2016. 
Previously, at age 17, he is much better known for being the very first person to jailbreak his iPhone so that he could use any carrier he wanted. And only a few years later, he reverse-engineered a Sony PlayStation, enabling it to both read and write in memory within the device. This was such a problem that Sony had to shut down its entire PlayStation service in order to fix it. So Live Overflow was influenced by GeoHot? So GeoHot George Hotz, um, he made a live stream where he solved hacking challenges, CTF challenges. And I thought that was fascinating the, because this was the first time where I looked another professional over the shoulder, really watching them code. I don't know what, what your experience or the audience's experience is, especially people who are developers or who, who are in IT. It's kind of rare to actually look somebody else over the shoulder. We share blog posts, we share our code. Um, you can look at code on GitHub, but the process of actually creating code and hacking also is not something you typically are able to see other people do. Um, even in university also, you usually write your projects alone and uh, you rarely look somebody else over the shoulder how they work. And so seeing GeoHot work his magic in the terminal and reading assembly code writing exploit scripts, that just blew my mind and really, really helped me to move forward with my own education. At the core, Live Overflow wanted to learn about computer security and then share what he knew with others. But it wasn't an example of, I know everything, follow me. It was much more organic, much more of a, here's what I learned and I'd like to share it with you now. So at the time, to put you in context where I was at at the time, I was studying in my bachelor's degree doing computer science and I was focused mainly on becoming a developer but I did have a huge interest in IT security and a little bit earlier to that I discovered these war games and CTFs that made it possible for me to even learn IT security in the first place because resources were so sparse and the problem was that the topics quickly got very, very complicated. You could find tutorials on basics, but anything more advanced just didn't really exist. And it was very, very laborious and time intensive to get anywhere forward. And so I was really frustrated because I was really, really eager to learn. I wanted to learn more. I felt I could understand these topics if somebody else could show them to me. But I found it really, really hard to explore these things on my own. And this was until then I stumbled over GeoHot doing the live CTF videos where I saw a professional just hack away in the terminal. And that really showed me how it was done and that there's not much secret to it. There's just a lot of things you can learn from watching somebody. And that ultimately motivated me. So Live Overflow was willing to learn on camera and admit stuff he didn't feel he knew well. Maybe that's what makes his 300 plus videos so genuine. I didn't think I have a lot of experience at the time because um, I was still starting myself, but I did feel like I broke through some walls through learning myself, mainly in the basics of uh, binary exploitation, memory corruptions, the basics, that I felt like they are much simpler than they appear to be. And I could maybe explain it in video form to people coming after me. So I didn't feel like I was a professional being able to show up, I, but I felt like I was somebody who got a bit further and I could make the, the videos that I wish I had when, when, when I started. Okay, so maybe influencer is too loaded of a term for live overflow. 
maybe we can settle on something else like mentor. I mean, in some way, certainly this is how what mentoring could be where a mentor show who is more experienced shows their way of working uh, to somebody else. Yeah, in that sense, it could be considered mentoring. There's a theoretical way to get started in InfoSec, and there's a hands-on way to get started. Theoretical typically means academic. You go to a university, you get a degree, and there's very little hands-on education in the process. So how do you get hands-on experience? Maybe you can get hired on at a company that will teach you, or maybe you can apprentice with somebody directly. But in the modern world, that type of training program or apprenticeship no longer is realistic. So Live Overflow set about trying to build his hands-on experience with his YouTube channel. Did he have a plan? Was he thinking he could script out so many episodes in advance? No, this wasn't a whole evolution. My name is Live Overflow because I started doing live streaming as well. I saw Geohot doing the live CTFs and I figured I want to do the same. I want people to look over my shoulder and watch me uh, work on basic buffer overflow challenges. Unfortunately, I realized that I'm not really good at that. Geohot is a very entertaining person. He's very fun to be around. But I was, my English is, I'm not a native speaker, so my English is not great. And the topics were still too complicated for me to be able to entertain a chat and offer insightful commentary while at the same time thinking about complex topics. So after trying that for a while and doing it this style, I figured that I'm much better at dissecting the information and putting them into a video script and then recording that. And back then I didn't think that it would be a very, very long series. In my mind, I thought these topics are so basic in some sense that I would be able to get from zero to somewhat experienced in, in binary exploitation very quickly. And I would be able to make these videos very quickly, um, not realizing that this was actually years of work in the end. First and foremost, Live Overflow is a computer engineer. He's not formally trained in marketing or multimedia. He's had to learn all of that himself. In any of this, yeah, in, in, in marketing, in video editing, and uh, in IT security as well. So this raises a question. Should computer science students also learn a bit of Adobe Premiere Pro, a little bit of Audacity, or whatever they choose to use? I mean, gamers pick this up too, offering cheats and whatnot on YouTube and Twitch. But what about the formal computer science students like Live Overflow? Actually, I think uh, basic video editing skills are very awesome, especially in the social media days. It's a, it's a little bit similar to how you want to teach students how to have good presentations. Um, a lot of university classes, there, there will be a class on how to give a good presentation because that's the way how you know, the industry works at work, you have to constantly give presentations, or you might go to a conference and give a presentation there. But with the increased importance of social media, I do think that being able to create being able to create a small video, and how to edit it that it's short, how to, you know, cut out the unnecessary parts, how to zoom in on a on a window that you are navigating so you don't record a huge 1080p monitor or even larger where nobody can read the text. You know, small things like this, just to have uh, 
a base level of quality in, in the video, I think that has huge values. Given that he's got six years of experience and he's been learning video along the way, does Live Overflow now cringe at anything that he's done in the past as part of his YouTube channel? Is he proud of the body of work that he's created? Uh, actually, I'm quite happy with how it started because I iterated over my video making process. I think what a lot of people struggle with that might want to create something themselves, they want it to be perfect the first time. And I'm glad I wasn't worried and just try to create something. And I realized the live streamings are not my style. And then just I iterated over it. I, I recently looked at um, the first videos I uploaded to my channel that are partially unlisted. Um, and they were the same video topic, the same challenge I solved, but in three different styles. One was a pure live recording. One was an attempt at having a prepared script, but still um, on the fly, just trying to record it. And then the third iteration was writing an actual script, recording the footage and editing it. And ultimately I then, you know, figured out how to make videos, how I like them to be. And often when creating a blog or any content for that matter, it takes a certain number of tries before it begins to feel natural. How long did it take Live Overflow before he fell into a groove with his YouTube channel? I think there were maybe several dozen, um, maybe even a hundred, but you have to consider that these were very low effort videos. They were mainly just turning on the camera and talking videos, so they are very easy to create. Some of them were even just like cut from a very long recordings. So they had multiple episodes. So it, it took a while. Time-wise, it's a, it's a couple of months. So I think I started in like March 2015. And in December 2015, I started with my now most popular series, the Binary Exploitation series. Some people dream of being famous. For a lot of programmers and security folk, that isn't necessarily the case. Anonymity and privacy are very important. So are there some downsides to being popular and having a massive following? So the biggest negative for me personally is that I'm not a person who likes to have attention uh, on me as a person. It's maybe a weird small difference, but when people say they are a fan of me, I cringe a little bit. I have a hard time with that, but I do want people to be fans of my videos. Uh, so that's a small difference, but I don't like this kind of personification and this kind of celebrity status that maybe comes with social media. And for a long time, I did the channel anonymously as well. Not even my colleagues or friends knew that I'm live overflow doing those videos because I wanted to stay anonymous it's, it's difficult for me to be a bit of a personality in this area. And despite what you hear, there's really not enough money in making podcasts or videos. Really, don't quit your day job when your subscriber count reaches 100,000. Live Overflow is well past that number, and he still has a pen testing job to support himself. Correct. So uh, in 2013, I also started working as a penetration tester, doing web application penetration tests or application security tests, mostly code audits, code reviews, black box, web app tests, that sort of stuff. 
So it's um, not necessarily related to binary exploitation, but I'm interested in, in all the fields. And yeah, I've been doing that on the side as a freelancer since 2013. And over time I did that, um, yeah, I, I did that while I was still studying and while I was still doing my master's degree, I was working as a freelancer and that's still what I do to today and what I consider my main priority simply because um, YouTube doesn't pay enough. And of course, I never thought that maybe with YouTube, I could even earn any money. There's a need for more InfoSec content. Again, programmers and hackers aren't necessarily oriented to public speaking and showmanship. So those who can, well, should they step up and start producing more content? So social media has an interesting dynamic uh, where, you know, when you you become popular by sharing content. And on Twitter, this can simply be a person who just takes a link and shares it on Twitter and they can grow their following this way. On YouTube, it's a bit more complicated because you have to actually make those videos yourself. So, so it can be very easy kind of to make a YouTube channel in IT security because first of all, there's still a market and a need for it, I think that is still not fully met. And so if you are consistent and you just basically take written tutorials that already exist and basically package them into videos, it's a, it's a very easy way to, to grow a following, I would say. Like the tension I mentioned between earning an academic degree and doing hands-on security work, there's also a tension with social media influencers. Just because someone has a pretty package, great music, and awesome editing skills doesn't mean they know what the hell they're talking about. What does Live Overflow think of people marketing themselves for particular skills and whatnot? Is this good, bad, otherwise? We like to think that IT is very merit-based. It's the typical response people say, you only get a job when you are good. And it's, it's often used in very sexist environments as well. Like um, people only get here because they are good and um, they want to talk down to other people uh, for various reasons. Um, and so I grew up in an environment that felt very merit-based. That's also one of the reasons why I didn't want to expose my own personality. I've talked before about imposter syndrome in InfoSec, and it's real. It's the feeling that even if you are on top of your profession, you still don't know enough to share with others. Often, you do know enough, and you really should share what you do know. Who knows? You might be really good at it. The environments I was around were you know, hacker spaces and conferences where people showed cool research. And I felt like that all these people do really, really cool technical work. And I want to prove myself and do my own technical work. Otherwise, I'm not allowed to present myself um, as a professional person in this industry. And of course, with social media, it's there are different ways of showing off yourself in at typical conferences, you come with a prepared topic, you have some cool research to show. And you know, on YouTube or social media, there are less these requirements. So it's a bit um, easier to, um, to, to get a following and advertise yourself. And of course, this is important. I don't wanna, I don't wanna devalue this. I don't wanna sound like um, I have a huge problem with this because in the end, it's the networking part that is important for job finding. Um, we, we like to think it's all merit-based, but as you and I know, it's mostly about networking and knowing the right people to be able to land really good jobs. And I can't speak about that 
uh, from my own experience because my penetration job, my penetration testing job as a freelancer, I got through connections, uh, knowing people. So um, in the end, social media is a great opportunity for people to grow a network that, that only happened uh, at conferences. We've just been through a global pandemic, and for the moment, in-person conferences are still somewhat non-existent. So I would think that this would be a boon for social media, and for YouTube in particular, for people getting out there in other ways. Yeah, I think um, YouTube and social media is an interesting way that the cybersecurity industry hasn't really explored yet. I think one of the biggest marketing places we had in IT security was basically Black Hat Conference or other big conferences. And the marketing around that is kind of interesting. You have a conference like Black Hat that has these talks that are very technical and um, that are basically there to advertise this conference as having the merit, the, the, they, they prove themselves, look, we have the cool research. But then in the end, it's only to draw people in for the marketing part in the booths where the vendors can uh, sell their, their products. And this was kind of the only big marketing place, at least that I know of, that existed in, in the IT security industry. And so social media has been growing in that regard too, that some companies start to explore how it is to advertise on YouTube. There are also some IT security podcasts that increasingly interview um, in, with, with the industry and uh, show off products and talk about products from other companies. So yeah, I think these are very new ways that uh, advertisement is being done in IT security. LineCon is where you're standing in line at DEF CON, for example, with somebody very interesting and you strike up a conversation. Maybe they give you a challenge coin or a lead on a job in return for some information you give them. Something like that. How's that work with social media? The, yeah, the LineCon is actually a really good um, example of something that is not working so well in social media in, in some places. However, I do think there are some very cool changes um, in the recent one or two years with that. So back in the days, there were these IRC channels. And if you happen to stumble over the existence of IRC, you might be able to get into a small community that feels very much like stumbling into people at a conference where you can strike up conversations about interesting topics. But then this kind of, these sub-communities were kind of lost for some time. But in the recent years, due to Discord, there has been an explosion of Discord servers. So Discord is like, uh, like Slack uh, for IT security communities. And they are I basically get invites sent every day to new Discord channels where people want to talk to people. And these are small communities, sometimes about certain topics, sometimes not, but where you can just casually interact with people, read the conversations of other people, you know, eavesdrop on very interesting things. Uh, so I think they somewhat replace maybe the typical line, lines at conferences. Again, it's at LineCon, at conferences, that you sometimes hear about the great job opportunities that are out there. That's true. I knew the people that introduced me to my job also from uh, conferences. I saw the person first, the person that um, gave me my job opportunity, I saw them giving a talk at a conference. 
um, and meeting other people, uh, yeah, also through conferences. In, in social media, it's a bit different. The motivation seems a bit different or the, the capabilities to find jobs. We see, or I observe a huge rise in bug bounties and people wanting to get into bug bounties for a career, not so much traditional jobs. Um, I feel like social media, especially Twitter and YouTube, is even mainly dominated by this wish of being an independent bug bounty hunter and getting a job um, in, in that area, not in all the other fields that exist. Online communities are still just niche. You have to know somebody to know about these. There's no central board, for example, for Discord. Generally, the discovery, I mean... In some way, we are all victim to the social media algorithms in this case. Um, it's the YouTube algorithm that is advertising my videos, and it's the Twitch feeds um, that are algorithmically sorted that decide if you are exposed to a certain community or not. So it's a weird dynamic that you have. It's not like an event that you go to and you know there will be people. Um, on the other hand, I would argue to know that uh, cybersecurity conferences exist, you also already have to be in that community. So, I mean, I was a student doing um, regular computer science, and I didn't even know that IT security conferences exist. Traditional InfoSec conferences sometimes are inaccessible for whatever reason. We mentioned Black Hat. Well, there's a couple Black Hats around the world, but DEF CON, on the other hand, occurs only in Las Vegas. I would think that using Discord or Twitch or other social media, we're starting to reach some of those people that might never physically get to attend those conferences. To be, to be honest, when I started to get introduced into IT security and when I started my channel, I asked myself this question, how many professionals are out there that would be even interested in, this kind of, in these kind of topics? And I thought maybe... It, it felt like maximum maybe 10,000 people worldwide uh, might, be, might be interested in that. But I think that was a problem of the very small bubble that I was in, namely the German IT security scene or the German hacking scene. And I think what you can see on the growth of my channel, just the raw subscriber numbers, that I've reached hundreds of thousands of people that are more or less interested in IT security. So there are, of course, many developers and um, people that are might, maybe not in IT or may, maybe not yet in IT that maybe find their way into IT thanks to these kind of videos. But I think it showed me that the world is much bigger than what it feels like the conference bubble to be. At a conference, there are also Maybe, maybe a couple of thousand people at, at a really, really big conference. And that is not the world. There are you know, 10x, 100x, maybe more people than that in, in, in the world. I believe the last Black Hat USA that I went to in 2019 was around 15,000 people. And Jeff Moss, who founded both DEF CON and Black Hat, makes a point of pointing out at the start of Black Hat the number of countries represented each year. Some countries only have one representative, but they get a huge round of applause. I don't know if anyone can, but can you compare physical conferences to the reach you have with 600,000 online followers? So to the conferences I went to, um, I actually, especially the professional conferences, I don't see actually a lot of diversity, but that's probably because of the regionality, because the further away you are, um, you won't travel to these kind of conferences, of course. 
so I'm able, or I was able to get exposed and get introduced to people from all over the world. And I see a large following from Indonesia or Morocco and Egypt. Um, people I never re realized or never thought about that there are that there's also a hacking culture developing and evolving. And maybe their hacking industry is not uh, that far yet. They don't have many big known companies that are operating on an international scale, but these hacking communities are just now evolving in these places. And I think I'm able to reach them through social media. And with a large online audience, would one be able to discern differences? Say, Brazilian hackers are more interested in this as opposed to Indonesian followers. Oh, I wish I had uh, that detailed market analysis. Um, there are certainly some differences, especially in motivation for why people uh, want certain jobs. And I think there's also just like cultural differences in how people approach jobs. Um, I even notice it with the US and Germany a lot, given that um, I feel the US industry is a lot about public and private uh, sectors, while in Germany, the public sector is a little bit frowned upon. Um, always a bit more skeptical skeptical about uh, work for the government. And so there is a lot of um, cultural differences when it comes to um, how hacking is kind of uh, viewed. That's actually very interesting. So the types of hacking in different regions are a product of local culture. Yeah, for sure. The Germany has a huge um, organization called the Chaos Computer Club. They organize the largest IT security or hacker conference um, in, in Europe, I guess, maybe. And they are very political as well. And they advise a lot the politicians and they are very skeptical always of um, new developments in, in that regard. And I guess from through history, especially Stasi and the DDR with surveillance and um, you know how usable hacking skills are in, in these skill sets, people are very suspicious um, when, when these skill sets are being used for government jobs. Speaking of politics, conferences themselves can get very political. There are certain speakers that always show up, and you start to wonder, how do I break that glass ceiling? How do I get invited to be a speaker at some major conference? I would think that with social media, we're creating new stars, individuals who are different from those that you would normally expect to find at a major security conference. That is probably true, though I would say I'm very exposed to very technical conferences where the talks are um, really about uh, showing research. And, and yes, there are the people that do really good research that show, off, uh, show up multiple times. But in the end, they still bring really, really good research. And from my experience, uh, people that have really good research usually also have a good chance of getting accepted to conferences. But these IT security conferences are obviously more than just the actual technical presentations. And I guess those are the more, um, the more fun talks, I guess, the, the less technical talks. Um, and maybe there is such a thing as, you know, a small knit circle of very good speakers that are always invited all the time. But I'm, I'm actually not so experienced in, in that regard. Earlier, we talked about merit, and I think about that too. It's like, if you haven't done the work, then why are you telling me about all this stuff? There's a little bit of showmanship with YouTube, and some people might razzle-dazzle, but not actually have the merit to be able to speak to these things. 
I think the unfortunate uh, reality is that the line between merit and just repackaging content is uh, very little. I myself consider myself, and that's why I also feel not very comfortable with me as a personality is because I don't feel like I have shown a lot of research. What I do is I repackage a lot of stuff other people have done. I take known techniques for exploitation and package them into an, a video. I do think that I do it in a very unique way and I have a specific way of thinking about these topics and I present them oftentimes in very different ways how they have been traditionally presented or how they would have been presented in traditional learning environments. I think a lot about how I can um, um, educate people on these topics in, in, in different ways. So I do think that I have found a good qualification for educational purposes, but I don't think I have the merit for actually like doing research and pushing the field forward. But for the audience, this can uh, look very differently. The audience often uh, puts people like me up on a pedestal thinking that I'm one of the greatest hackers alive just by showing off stuff that just other people have you know, figured out. By training, I'm an InfoSec journalist, so I have a very broad background in security, but I can't go very deep on any one topic. There are some people, like me, who feel that sharing knowledge about security is good because you're opening people up to new stuff that they might not have otherwise known. Would Live Overflow be comfortable with describing himself that way? Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of that. I mean, that was was... That is what Geohot was doing as well. He was doing live CTF and just showing off, uh, packaging, you know, the information that was maybe out there in a new, unique way of being able to look somebody over the shoulder. And so I'm a huge fan of that as well. The problem is that um, it often, so it's it's a very small thing, but it's a way how these how the YouTubers are communicating this. It can very quickly sound like um, I actually know everything and I figured out everything myself rather than a journalist who, where the relationship, the story and the journalist is very clear. A journalist is just the person that is transferring that knowledge while a, a YouTuber might look like I'm the source of, of the knowledge. And I'm, it's, it might be not clear that I myself uh, just repackage some other story. And then it, through that, it becomes like I'm the great person even though I'm just the, the messenger of the great information. There's value to being a trusted messenger, and there's value in what Live Overflow is doing. I do think that there's a little bit of a responsibility in um, highlighting your sources. I really like the academic way and the journalistic way where you are usually uh, citing your sources. And so in YouTube videos and other social medias, um, it can very quickly be where you just basically copy and paste some other people's work and you not even you may repackage it, you may re rewrite it, you put your own spin on it, but you are not really honest about um, that you kind of like took the other work. Now, I have to say like, I, I'm probably not perfect with that either. I, if I'm completely honest, probably people do not realize that maybe I'm also just repackaging other people's content uh, mainly. But I do think I, I tried a lot to showcase where my references are from and um, that 
I'm just learning this stuff too. And yeah, that, that that's kind of important to me. And I have a little bit of an issue with, with people that sometimes present themselves as huge experts, even though it's clear that they just basically read the first Google result. So with social media and its limits of 140 characters or five minutes comes a lack of depth. There's really a lot of abstraction or simplification of the underlying principle or technology going on deep inside. And sometimes that's a disservice. The IT security or cybersecurity industry is huge, it's massive. And the whole industry is standing upon the technical details, the actual hackers that uh, dig deep into the source code and bits and bytes and stuff like this. If there was not this original research that these hackers and security researchers found, there, there would be no discovered vulnerabilities. There would be no scanners that scan for vulnerabilities. There would be no products that can try to defend against these vulnerabilities or detect them. And there wouldn't be all the risk management that comes on top of that. I mean, the industry is huge. There are a lot of um, abstraction layers, but ultimately it's all standing on the people that really dig deep into the technical details. And I hope with my channel where I focus on very technical topics, I can kind of expose more people to the uh, deep technical details. And in the end, I think everybody, a developer or even a manager who can learn a bit more about the technical details will in the end be able to also do a better job, um, even though they are maybe a lot of layers away from the actual security research. There's something else that Live Overflow has observed, the rise of the developer evangelist. In the, in the area of developers and products that companies, software as a service products that companies offer, uh, there, there's this job title, uh, a developer evangelist, somebody who basically goes to conferences and presents a certain technology ju just in a way to uh, make it public that the company is developing something that maybe other people want to use. And this job doesn't really exist in IT security, I think. Uh, people that um, publicize kind of the, the, the products or the frameworks and the, the things that exist. And I think th there's a hole there. And I think maybe social media people will fill that at some point. Um, maybe it's the way where people discover actually the products and services that even exist. There's also a need with social media for a clear firewall. For example, people need to be told when something is sponsored by a company. They need to decide for themselves if the claims in that sponsored content are fair. On my channel, I have done a handful of um, sponsored videos, mainly for Google. And I think it's a very interesting way of advertisement because Google essentially paid me to present a vulnerability that was found in Google products. And for many companies, it might seem weird to advertise, hey, look, uh, we had a big vulnerability. And then even um, showing it off on, on YouTube where thousands of people will see that. So I think in, but, but I think this is a very clever way of advertisement and I hope more companies will um, follow in, in that regard to not feel shame about uh, vulnerabilities, but use this as an opportunity to show yeah, we are realistic, we are aware, we have security issues, and they are interesting, so we want to uh, show it to the world with sponsored videos. I really hope we see more of that.
And for this next series, Live Overflow is trying something a bit different. Yeah, so my longest running series is the binary exploitation series, Memory Corrupts, where I cover the basics of how buffer overflows and so forth work. And of course, throughout the years, I've done a multitude of other videos and other series um, that um, cover web web security. I have a game hacking series and a new series that I'm starting is on the recent pseudo vulnerability. And I do think that there's a very uh, unique series that doesn't really exist yet. And I hope this is another way of me making content that has doesn't really exist yet before, because I'm basically trying to slip in the role of somebody who discovers this vulnerability, analyzes it, and then actually exploits it. There's this concept that um, I'm not sure if that's actually a real name, but I've heard it before. It's called discovery fiction. It's where you make up a story of how something was discovered. Um, it might not be the real way, but it might be a, a very interesting and fun way to follow along. So I myself, I put myself, when I saw this vulnerability, I, I sat down and told myself, I try to rediscover this vulnerability now. And the great way is I can always cheat. I can always look up what the actual vulnerability was because it's obviously known, but I deliberately try to limit the information I, I look at and try to do it myself. And um, I think this is a great way to learn. And so I try to package this now into a series for, for videos where you know a person can follow along as if they were doing the original pseudo research. So the series is basically written. Um, I've done the research already. I've uh, done the complete run from uh, rediscovery, analysis, and exploitation. Along the way, I've taken notes and uh, saved all my code that I've written to do that. And I've already started uh, writing the scripts. They are in a very rough draft, but I know already that it will be roughly 11 episodes. While I then actually work on the individual episodes, I might split them up or rearrange things just because I think they don't flow as well um, in a video format. Security research, digging deep into technologies, that's not really educational content that exists in any form, at least I'm not aware of. It's pretty much already uh, prepared. Now I just have to sit down and edit and produce the videos. Um, so so I hope I can create something that's very interesting to a lot of people. I'd like to thank Live Overflow for sharing his thoughts with us. You can find his content on YouTube and subscribe. He has over 300 videos over six years. What he says represents everything he currently knows about information security. So there should be something there for you. Check it out. And there's a need for more people like Live Overflow to explain what they know and to reach a wider audience. Really, if you want to give this a try, you should. Really, just get a microphone, get a camera, and start talking. Who knows? You might be really, really good at this. Before you go, you can subscribe to The Hacker Mind on Spotify, Google, Apple, Amazon, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts, and never miss another episode. The Hacker Mind podcast is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain just another wannabe influencer, Robert Vimosi.